Welcome to The Secret Life of Cookies, where we try to solve the world's problems through the miracle of carbohydrates, one recipe at a time, with host Marissa Rothkoff and her dog, Bosco. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Secret Life of Cookies today. My guest is professor of law and frequent MSNBC contributing legal analyst, Melissa Murray, who I am so grateful was able to make time to come on the podcast and help us understand the Supreme Court's decisions and doings over this past court term. I promise you will finish this podcast not just wiser, but if you're anything like me, with a bit more hope and a lot more sense um, and a little bit less raw emotion than when you started. Uh, before we dive deep into the pod, I baked M&M cookies with Melissa um, as she explained it all. <laughs> Sorry, the Nickelodeon employee in me could not resist. Um, anyway, you can bake along and listen or bake after or bake next week if you want, really, whenever you want. The recipe, you can find it uh, for the podcast and all podcasts can be found on my Substack newsletter at marissarothkoff.substack.com, along with a giant archive of recipes and stories of American kitchen history. There you can support my work with a subscription for just $5 a month, or if that's not possible for you, you can subscribe for free and still find the recipes. And please don't forget to join the Deep State Radio as a member for special perks. Either way, I am grateful for your support. Now, Enough of me. Here is Melissa. Hello and welcome to The Secret Life of Cookies on this sort of, right now we're um, recording this, uh, uh, the last day of the Supreme Court's term. Not much has been going on, um, but you know, I thought maybe I'd get like leading expert Melissa Murray on, Stokes Professor of Law at NYU, co-host of the Strict Scrutiny podcast, and approved by my cat, Clyde, who seems to be crawling right onto the cookie sheet. Um, as my guest today, thank you so much for being here. I thought we'd maybe kick off like talking about um, feelings and emotions before we get into making cookies to help us with our emotions. Um, any thoughts on describing like an adjective or like I'm making only guttural sounds at this point when I think about the week. Um, and a lot of internal noise. What about yourself? Um, it's, you know, it's been a pretty, it's been a pretty, I don't even know what to say. It's, it's been a banger of a week and not necessarily in a good way. Things just sort of keep coming and it's, it's been a very busy week in terms of work and yeah. Um, I, I don't know what to say. It just sort of feels like the wheels are falling off a little bit in terms of, the things that we've sort of come to expect and and rely right. upon. I, um, I think that a lot of us feel that way, and I'm sort of surprised. It always makes me sad to realize that not everyone feels the way we do. It's it's just like you know, been a really great week to be like straight white male Christian. You know, I think it's been a great century. You know, not if while we're talking about centuries. Century. We could just say centuries. No matter what they say. Um, it, I, I think a lot of people are um, f ending the week feeling very down. And um, yeah, 
I'm going to make cookies, which is a terrible segue, but I am. I'm making M&M cookies because it's about as basic and wholesome and ridiculous as you get. It's a cream cheese dough with some whole wheat flour and M&Ms in it. And I'm only sorry you don't have, I can't give them to you because I think of all the people, you really deserve some. I love a cookie. Um, Let me ask you a a few questions. Um, I'm going to start off a little bit. with a sort of rough quotation that I I read and by rough, I mean, it sort of strikes me as a little rough um, by uh, JB Wolfstall who said, um, and this is me quoting him. If the Supreme court doesn't respect precedent, then why should lower courts respect the principle of the new precedents? And I just sort of wonder, is he like being overly provocative or alarmist to sort of suggest judicial anarchy? So, I mean, it, it definitely is a provocation, I think, but one that is worth discussing. Um, you know, yes, we have a court that seems untethered from precedent, um, or at least the precedents they don't like. And, you know, the question is, like, what what restrains lower courts from similar being untethered from precedents that they don't like? Um, it's always been the sort of legitimacy of the Supreme Court. And, the faith of the judiciary as an institution. And I think, you know, a lot of people and probably even some lower court judges are losing faith with the institution as a whole. I mean, it it would be very hard not to, like even leaving aside these decisions, it's one thing to have decisions that you don't necessarily agree with, um, but it's an entirely different thing to have these decisions that you don't agree with that you think are lawless or made up or resting on premises that are made up. And then you also have, you know, reporting about justices who are going on lavish trips with billionaires and holding salmon that billionaires gave them. And oh, and those billionaires have business before the court. Like, it's hard to keep faith with an institution when you think that you're playing by the rules and the institution is not. That is exactly where I was going with this question, because I feel like it's not just that this week has been like, or this term or these couple terms have felt like a trip back in the time machine, but it's also been like, we have these undercurrents of Samuel Alito saying, who this guy was a, um, that appeared before the court. He he was a, a what a hedge fund manager. Never heard of them. Um, and that <laughs> <Spat>. totally <laughs> no, don't know him. Who is he? And Clarence Thomas's wife. Nah, we never talk about business. It's just um, our being. Um, <laughs> we maintain a strict separation in our exactly. Private lives. We just read yeah. RV magazines together and talk about them. <laughs> we love, we would rather be in a Walmart parking lot in our RV, not on a beach in the Galapagos like any normal person. Um, like, honestly, that was to me the tell. Like, when he said that on that documentary, like, we we prefer to be, you know, with normal people in the Walmart parking lot. I'm like, nobody's ever no, said nobody. that. Like, no one has ever said they prefer a Walmart parking not, lot to the beach. And no, no, not the will. manager of that Walmart, not the head of Walmart. Nope, not one nope. person. Uh, so how do we like kind of, how do we manage this going forward then? You know, I feel like I'm like an elderly person (laughs) at this point because, you know, I see on Twitter, all of these people sort of railing, like, you know, like this is Joe Biden's fault. We didn't get student loan relief. Like, you know, he knew this wasn't possible. It's like, you know, when Joe Biden made that campaign promise, 
it was in the hope, I think, that there would be an amenable Congress, that the Democrats would win both houses of Congress, and this would be able to be done through a statute um, that was specifically geared toward this. When that didn't happen, he then pivoted and the administration pivoted. And there was this HEROES Act, which the Trump administration had used quite successfully to delay the payments of student loans. And it's you know written quite broadly. It talks about waiving certain kinds of obligations in the face of a public of emergency. It doesn't specify what kind of emergency, nor does it define what it means to waive something. And they decided that they would sort of latch on to that. And, you know, that's a plausible public policy pivot to make. Like you, your first best choice would obviously be a very tailored statute. That didn't happen because we didn't win both houses of Congress. So the next step would be to sort of use existing statutory provisions and this seemed like the right one. And to be fair, um, it was an open question um, in large part because we had this court that seems really hell-bent on limiting the executive's power to make these kinds of decisions and to administer statutes in this way. But it wasn't, I think, beyond the realm of possibility to assume that this would be an appropriate route to take, and they did. Um, it's just that it then slammed up against this court, which for many years has seemed intent on limiting the administrative state and the authority of administrative agencies like the Department of Education, and has been really pushing for a doctrine that says that when Congress makes laws and delegates some of their authority to administrative agencies to act, they have to be very, very, very specific. And in fact, the court in this decision that was announced on Friday in the student loan cases, you know, talked about this major questions doctrine that is, you know, when there's a major question of real salience that Congress has to actually specify what it wants the agency to do. It can't be like broad or general. It has to be really specific. But what are these issues of major salience? It's whatever the court says they are. So, I mean, it's this is about the court and the court getting to sort of set the tenor and decide when Congress can act and delegate to agencies and when agencies can act on that authority. And the people who lost today were those who went to bed thinking they'd gotten $10,000 worth of student loan relief and woke up knowing that, in fact, they had not. Um, but again, you know, when I see people sort of talking about this administration has done nothing, maybe I won't vote for Joe Biden, maybe I'll vote for some other person. I'm just like, you know, in that path lies madness. I mean, like to divide the progressive caucus, I think, is to open the door for another Donald Trump or maybe someone who's even worse than Donald Trump going forward. So, anyway, again, I know I will get a ton of pushback on that, but I, I really don't know what other options were available in the face of not winning Congress and not being able to actually pass the kind of statute that would have explicitly legislated this. Um, they made, I think, a quite appropriate pivot given the circumstances. Um, I, I tend to agree with you. And also, you know, President Biden went on the air moments before we recorded this mm -hmm. and said, I'm going to make this work. I'm going to find a way to do it. And, Basically speaking to your point, um, hopefully um, for the people out there with grievous student loans that he it will make it happen. The idea of splitting the progressives even further, you know, it's like, it really is like at, at some point I feel like I'm talking with little children all the time, you know, or I'm listening to little children talk because 
they're not doing themselves any favors. They're like yammering, as my mother would say, and not realizing what the big picture is. They just want their ice cream cone. You know, they don't realize that whatever. Mm-hmm. I can't create a better analogy. I mean, I, I, I hear them. I mean, I, I understand. I mean, like these kids are inheriting the shittiest world. Like, I don't know what else to say. Like climate change. Um, you know, I graduated from college in the late nineties and you know, was really fortunate. I got a full ride to college. So I didn't have student loan debt from college, but I did incur student loan debt to go to law school. And, you know, I've sort of steadily paid that down over time. And, you know, would I have loved student loan relief? Sure. I didn't get it, but I don't begrudge it to anyone else. And, you know, it wasn't so much that I was limited in the choices that I could make about home ownership or whether I started a family or something. But I also, you know, I work in an institution of higher education. I know how expensive law school is. I know how expensive college is. I know that it's become exponentially more expensive in just the 20, 30 years since I was in college. And so I get how beleaguered they feel. Like, you know, it's the student loans, it's, you know, the pandemic, it's the living with your parents, it's the climate. I mean, it just, it just looks hopeless in a lot of ways. And so I understand their grievances. I just, you know, I, to me, it seems the only options are to try and work with what we have the system we have and try to push for better by consolidating our wins and expanding them or to burn it all down. And, you know, I'm a lawyer, I'm an institutionalist. Like, yeah, I'm not going to be on the burn it all down team, but I get why people are. Yeah. I mean, I know a lot of people and I'm thinking of like my son who's sort of on the burn it, a 17 year old kid. So I think maybe it's sort of healthy to be on the burn it all down side of things. I have a burning down teenager too. <laughs> so you get what it's like. And I also like work at a, a public university, Montclair State, and talk to people who are like, oh yeah, I got accepted to wherever, but I didn't want to be in debt for 45000 you know, $80,000 yeah. a year. Yeah. So here I am. Yeah. Um, yeah. A lot of people out there saying, well, we, you know, we, we should expand the court. Speaking of like Joe Biden and his thought of no, 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 we shouldn't. And I wondered where you um, fall on that as we sit here and go, Oh, what are we going to do other than vote, 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 vote? I, 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 I don't, I'm not one of these. I, I think in the past I have been more tentative around court expansion, but I think at this point it's clear that this is not a normal court. As Joe Biden said, I would go even further and say that this is a rogue court. It's a court that in many ways, is acting not only irresponsibly, but illegitimately. And I think every tool should be on the table. It actually makes me um, annoyed a little when Joe Biden is like, you know, that's a bridge too far. We can't talk about court expansion. I'm like, you don't have to do court expansion, but you can talk about it. Like, what does it mean? Why would we do it? What are the conditions under which that you know, we finally say enough is enough. Um, I think everything ought to be on the table. They should be talking about term limits. They should be talking about Congress limiting the budget of the Supreme Court until the justices are willing and amenable to abiding by the kind of code of ethics that every other federal judge abides by, which by the way, is not that strenuous, but it's a start. Like, I mean, we can expect more of them and, and we should. And so I'm, you know, 
I think everything should be on the table. Like FDR did not succeed in packing the court, um, even though he had a majority in Congress, um, a Democratic majority in Congress. He never would have been successful if he'd pushed it, but he talked about it and he talked about it in a really serious way. And again, the court depends on public opinion and it knows that. And I think, you know, some of to the extent the court has been moderate, and I say that with air quotes this year and, you know, upholding provisions of the Voting Rights Act and whatnot, I think a large part of that is because they understand that we are watching, that the scrutiny of the court has never been more intense, that they are really reeling from people's perception that the court is illegitimate or other, or bought by billionaire interests. And I think they know that it impacts their ability to do their work and they do course correct. Now, it doesn't mean that they are entirely chastened, like the end of this term was absolutely a hellscape. Um, so they're still prosecuting the conservative legal agenda, but they're, the way they sequenced it, the way they rolled it out seemed inclined to focus on, or let me say that again. The way they rolled it out, the way they sequenced the decisions, that seemed very purposeful about ensuring that the public had some good news before it got this rash. So like the electoral decision versus before the other decisions. Yeah. Uh, But we're still all reeling from like the Dobbs decision. Dobbs? (laughs) (laughs) Well, so I don't, I don't, I don't feel like as an, as an average citizen, this like, oh, they seem chastened, you know, sort of thing. Um, But if that's, so I'd love to have a sense of how I see that other than just, is there, are there other ways that I I see that they are a little taken aback by what's going on in their own court? So, you know, I think one thing that's interesting is, um, Dobbs was certainly unprecedented in a lot of ways. Um, It's not unprecedented now. Um, And the affirmative action decision, I think, is very much like Dobbs. Like the court, although it didn't say so explicitly, overruled another precedent um, and did so without observing the sort of, or at least nodding to the standard stare decisis factors that it ordinarily would consider. Um, It's it's produced a lot of outrage, um, a lot of blowback. I, I think we're seeing that in even red states like Kansas, where there was that voter initiative that very clearly signaled support for reproductive freedom. Um, one of the things I think it makes clear is that the court is not the only institution that has something to say about these questions of reproductive rights, reproductive freedom. You know, the court is one institution, but there are others. Like, there could be action that happens in Congress to codify Roe. There could also be action in Congress if the Democrats lose Congress that makes fetal personhood a statutory reality across the country and makes Mephapristone unavailable across the country. So, I mean, there are lots of different actors here. There are also actors on the state level. Like, you know, a lot of the litigation focus in abortion rights has shifted to the states, um, you know, really pushing in states that are really trying to limit access, like, but have constitutional provisions in their state constitutions that are more amenable to reproductive rights or that have equal rights amendments in their state constitutions, pushing on those, expanding protections in blue states that are already hospitable, and keeping an eye on what the sort of broad federal picture looks like. You know, like, we're still waiting for 
a decision about like, you know, what will happen vis-a-vis Mifepristone access across the country. And, you know, that'll hopefully come down at some point. Um, but you, this is a dynamic shifting environment, but it's not just one that the court wholly occupies. The court certainly set this in motion, but it's not going to be the only actor here. And so we have to remember, like, the court may be captured, maybe Congress isn't doing what you want to do, but there are other arenas in which we can play. And we shouldn't cede any of those arenas. We shouldn't cede power in any of those arenas. Like when you get your ballot and you're voting, well, one, you should get your ballot and you should be voting. And when you get your ballot, a lot of people focus on the top of the ticket, like president, Senate, all that. There's other stuff. Like you've got to be voting for your district attorney. That's the person who's going to decide whether they're going to prosecute women for terminating a pregnancy. You have to focus on your school board. Those are the people who are going to decide if kids get books that talk about same-sex couples or if those are off the table or if kids can even read Toni Morrison. Like those are important positions. Like there are a huge swath of positions that we don't even think about that we need to be informed about, that we need to be focused on because there's power there too. State court judges are often elected officials, um, not appointed, and you elect them. And a lot of people just reflexively check because they don't know. Figure out who these people are, what they stand for, and then decide if you're going to vote for them. There may be many positions in your community that go unoccupied. Maybe that's some place that you could step in. Like, I mean, many people have principal jobs, but also moonlight as elected officials. Like, you can do that too. Um, There's a lot of ways in which we don't have to sort of slink off into this conservative hellscape that they've created for us. Like we can do other things. Yeah. I think you're right. If, uh, if we spend too much time renting our clothes, renting at our clothing, we're not going to. The runway. So yeah, we got to stop renting at our garments long enough to, to get out there and do something. I mean, you can rent your garments yeah. while you're in line at the um, election office. You don't have to be wearing clothes <laughs> when you're voting. <laughs> like, you can rent at the vote. same time. But yes. you've heard it here, folks, um, first. Uh, I know I have to let you go soon. Um, I'm sorry there are no cookies. Here's one right now. This is You can see oh, that looks all the beautiful. little. Uh, is that the, the dough? dough? Raw cookie dough. It looks so and good. Do you know, I, I, I'm a terrible baby. Why? I, I wish... I'm, Cause I, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not, my mom never taught me and I'm not but, good. But do you, know. do you want to bake? Not okay. especially, but I think my children would like to <laughs> <laughs> Well, very easily. Like what about the back of the box recipe for chocolate chip cookies? I should, I, I should. I, I guess my daughter loves to bake and okay. she often bakes, but she didn't get this. Okay. Way. Well, we should get her, we'll get her on and then I'll like show her what to do. Okay. Um, the other thing, did you know okay. there's like a great, like, Pillsbury makes a fantastic Pillsbury. Betty Crocker, because she always thinks nice things for us. Betty Crocker makes a chocolate chip cookie mix that all you have to do is mm-hmm. add butter to it. It's all natural. It doesn't have anything weird in it that you wouldn't add yourself. Oh, I could do that. Exactly. I could do that. And all I, I would that. say is I could add, add butter, add soft butter, and add some vanilla because that makes you feel fancy. Oh my God, See? I love okay. that. Take, take yes, it, it's yours. Okay. But you know what? You don't have to do anything this weekend. Like maybe take some time off. Um, one last question, which is why did you, let's go back, because why did you become a lawyer? And did you think oh. 
that the Supreme Court, in, well, at least in my eyes, would be going backwards in your time. Backwards. I, I, like, I've like really like got to steal myself so I don't cry here. Um, because I'm going to talk about my okay. mom who oh, recently passed okay, away. Sorry. <laughs> um, so my dad died when I was a senior in high school and we had this lawyer who was handling all of the state stuff. And, you know, my mom was like many women of her generation, like, you know, she sort of let her husband handle the finances, the house, things like that. And when he passed away very suddenly, well, it wasn't sudden, he was ill for a long time, but like, I think it was sudden when it actually happened. Um, I, I think she was just sort of like, overwhelmed by the magnitude of all of the decisions to be made, all of the things that she didn't know that she now had to know that she was now responsible for. And that lawyer just came in like, you know, Olivia Pope in a white suit and a white hat. He, he wasn't wearing a white suit or a white hat. It was Florida. Um, but he handled things. And I remember just like his competency was so comforting to my mother and to me um, because it was such a disruptive event. Um, like, I mean, that, that is an understatement. Um, but what was perhaps most disruptive about it was just seeing your parent utterly racked and, and just unsure about what came next. And that was really, really disconcerting. But he sort of stepped in and, you know, sorted things. And I was just like, that's how I want to be. I want to be someone who sorts things out and like who explains and and there's clarity and people feel better and they're assured that and like they know what's happening now. And, you know, I'm not a practicing lawyer. I'm a law professor. Um, so I do more explaining. I don't know how comforting my <laughs> students find it when I explain. But um, but that was that's why I did it. Um, you know, lawyers Lawyers have so much authority. Like, like the law is just so opaque to so many people. I mean, you see this on Twitter, and people are like, "Just like I'm a Twitter lawyer, I know." Like, you actually don't know. I mean, like, but I'm going to step in and like sort of explain. And like, I think there's real value in that, and like helping people understand what's happening because law structures so much of our lives, and yet not everyone understands what it's doing, how it works. And you need people to sort of explain, explain what's at stake for these decisions that seem so far removed from your life. But that's going to be the difference between whether you went to sleep with $10,000 and whether you woke up still owing $10,000. And so that I think is you know, sort of why I do what I do. Um, it also strikes me that, um, you know, why I'm especially interested in sort of helping women sort of become leaders in the law is, again, another story about my mother. Um, we, I grew up in Florida. And you know when I we first moved there, my mom took me to Disney World and they have the Hall of Presidents. And I remember you know watching the Hall of Presidents and being like, wow, like all of these presidents, most of them were lawyers. And it was just like, oh, if you want to run this country, you got to be a lawyer. It also occurred to me that there were no women up there on that tabloid, all these animatronic men. And so, you know, here I am 40 years later, and I really believe if you want to change the face of leadership in this country, you have to change who the leaders in the law are. 
right? Because lawyers are leaders in our country. I'm not just the Supreme Court. You know, President Biden is a lawyer. Kamala Harris is a lawyer. If you want to change the leadership profile, it starts in law school. It starts in law firms. It starts in with women lawyers feeling like they're empowered to lead in whatever environment they are. And so that's why I became a lawyer. That's why I do what I do today in law schools and with women lawyers. And yeah, that's... That's you know, it's, that's a, um, thank you for sharing that story. I have felt over the past couple of years, like when I was growing up, people made lawyer jokes, right? You know, um, bad lawyer <laughs> jokes. And, <laughs> they do. but they, and they, and that was sort of more popular now. I think in the past, sort of since the start of the Trump times, I have never wished that I could be a lawyer more because of these. Yeah brilliant minds like yours that I see on TV who are explaining things to me who are making stuff happen from people like you to Robbie Kaplan. Um, it's Robbie Kaplan's making right? things happen. And um, you're explaining it to us, which is so necessary. And you're also raising another like group of female lawyers. I mean, I suppose there's some guys in there too, but some. <laughs> there are, there are. Um, yeah, but, I mean, again, like, Yes, I work a lot with young women lawyers, but I mean, I think a big part of our job in law schools is to prepare all of our students for a changing leadership model. Like, it's not going to yeah. look like what your dad's leadership mm -hmm. model looked like. And everyone's got to be okay with it. And everyone's got to know how to work with leaders who don't look like them. And so I think that's especially important after the decision and the affirmative action cases. Like, you know, that, that was what the amicus briefs we're talking about, like from the military and from the corporations, like we live in a diverse society and leadership is changing. Everyone has to be able to work with people who are not necessarily like them. And college is the place where that happens because most of our lives, we live in these right. enclaves where we're with other people who are like us. Um, and that's exactly right. And that's exactly why I think so many of us are sort of demoralized today. Well, you can cry, but when you're done crying, you can vote. You can cry, you can vote, you can rend your garments and vote, you can run for office, you can think about how you're going to intervene. Um, like I think a lot of schools around the country now are thinking about how they can be creative and think you know, think around this decision. There are a lot of jurisdictions in this country that have been operating in a post-affirmative action world for a long time because there were already statutory regimes and state constitutional regimes that prohibited affirmative action programs. California, California right. where I used to live, was one of them. Like there are a lot of lessons to be learned from those places and a lot of innovative thinking that's going to need to be done if you truly believe that diversity is worth it. Right. And you know, I've been I got a slew of emails in the past 24 hours or so from places that my son is thinking of applying to and also my alma mater saying this is what we're going to do. Don't you worry, it's going to be okay. And I find that very heartening because that's kind of where it needs to start. We also need to remember like the Supreme Court issues decisions and those decisions are specific and the court's decision was about higher education admissions. It doesn't apply to employment, despite what some of the conservatives on Twitter are hope for. Yeah. <laughs> and institu yeah, institutions and corporations should not view this decision as limiting them. Like until the Supreme Court actually limits you, you're not limited. Yeah. And so, I mean, I think part of this is like, being creative, continuing to push the envelope, like what is possible? Because what they would love to see happen is for this decision to chill everything that might be possible. But we're not going to let that happen. We're going to vote up and down. So uh, 
And we do everything else. We push envelopes, lick envelopes, send envelopes, all, all the, the all the envelopes all and um, big cookies all for people them. who are doing that with the envelopes. Yes. Um, someday I hope yes. to present you with actual cookies. But in the meantime, I thank you so much for being here today and making it all feel actually, I feel like my chest has like untightened a little bit after reading so much news for the past week or two. Well, I think it's probably <laughs> no. It's always better to know that there's an action plan, and I'm grateful to you for it. Right, well, thanks so much. <laughs> thanks, for and have me. a wonderful weekend. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for tuning in. You can follow Melissa on Twitter and listen to the Strict Scrutiny podcast wherever fine pods are potted. Recipes and links to everything you want and need can be found at marissarothkoff.substack.com. Have a great week.